Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, and we will begin our reading in verse 1. Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 1. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, read along with us from the screen. If you're reading or studying Isaiah, it is a book that keeps you on your toes. The first 39 chapters, Isaiah writes a lot in first person, and he writes in a way where it seems that he is there watching the events take place. But then in chapter 40, he begins to prophesy about things that have yet to take place. And it is through some of these chapters, starting at chapter 40, where God really demonstrates his love toward us. He uh, calls on his people to stand and witness uh, to his goodness and what he's done for them. He assures them that there are tough days coming but he also assures them that just like I was with you in Egypt, I will be with you uh, when you're in Babylon. And I will be in charge no matter what happens. So let's begin our reading today in verse 1. We'll read through verse 14. It says, But now, but now thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. But when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers they will not overflow you, and when you walk through the fire you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom. He's talking about there was a time that the Egyptians stood against you. I laid them out. I left them at the bottom of the sea. He says, I have given Cush and Seba, those were cities in Egypt, in your place. And since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. That seems almost too casual for God to say. But he says, I love you. And I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear. Why? For I am with you. And I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west, and I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. 
Bring out the people who are blind. He had accused them in the previous chapter. Some of you have eyes you don't see, ears you don't hear. But he says, bring them, bring them out. Even though they have eyes and the deaf, even though they have ears, all the nations have gathered together. He kind of lays out a courtroom scene for us now. All the nations have gathered together so that all the peoples may be assembled. Who among them or which gods among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? If there is one, let him present their witness that they may be justified or let them hear and simply confess that what I have said is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. He says, before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed and there was no strange God among you. I, I, you were surrounded by idols. People worshipped everything in the world but me. And you know it and you saw it and then you got caught up in it. But he said, I'm telling you, there really were no other gods among you. So again, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand I act and who can reverse it. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Astore Gud was a Swedish hymn that was written in 1855 by Carl Gustav Borg. In Swedish, it's Ostore Gud. In English, it's How Great Thou Art. And George Beverly Shea probably made it more famous than anyone who has sung it in the English-speaking world. But if I had to choose a title for this passage of Scripture, and it's so interesting, even though we've not talked, but the praise team, if I could title the, the set of songs that God led you to this morning. I would entitle all of this, How Great Thou Art. How awesome is God. When we study theology, and that's a word a lot of people don't seem to like. They act as if that's, that, that's not a it's not something that's really exciting or whatever. It doesn't light their fire. But I want to tell you, theology, theos is God, and, and logos is the study of, in this case, it is the study of God. And he gave us a book about himself, and I think we ought to study about God. I don't think that's something that we should shy away from. You can call it whatever you like. And there are lots of different kinds of theology out there. There's what is very prevalent today that we would call liberal theology. Liberal theology basically says that I have brought my own lamp to the sundial and I'll decide for myself what hour it is. But 
you'll never be right. You just make you, it just makes you feel more powerful. People act as if I am creating God in my image, and if I wouldn't condemn this person, or if I would embrace this idea, or even though Scripture may speak against it, I just feel like God is more like me, and He thinks like me. As a matter of fact, the arrogant underlying assumption is that if God were more like me, He would be kinder and gentler, and He would just be a better God. I don't know how you can get more arrogant than that. Feminist theology wants God to love women. Here's a news flash. He already does. Liberation theology sees social justice. That's salvation. Uh, being a sinner and lost and on my way to hell is one thing, but, but because of my race or because of my gender or because of whatever, my social status, I've been put down and I want social justice and Men like Jeremiah Wright, they have made millions of dollars preaching that kind of gospel because it's really tasty among those who feel disinherited. Pentecostal theology is so experimental. If you notice, you never see books on Pentecostal theology. Just as sure as the world, somebody's going to hand me one after church. But I can tell you it'll be one of few because Pentecostals don't write a lot about their theology. It's not something you write down. It's not something that, of which there is a history. It's experiential. Well, you know, it's not in the Bible, but boy, I felt this. It was new, and we've seen so much new uh, come and go in that sphere of theology. You know, we've heard of the Holy Ghost glue and uh, and the slain in the Spirit and all of that. And even though none of that is taught in Scripture, it doesn't matter because if I felt it or I experienced it, then it's good as gold. Well, I preached this sermon this week at the revival, not knowing that the group that sang right before I preached when I got to talk with them at the church, you got it. That's where they were from. <laughs> they didn't hit me. But it is the truth. And then there's biblical theology. What does the Word of God say about God? What does God say about himself? Some people would, would find that God's unfair in this passage. He says, I have taken people's lives to save yours, Israel. I have chosen to let some die so I could keep my people together. I have chosen you over others. And, and before you decide to go to God with your own human understanding of fairness, I, I would warn you that your thoughts are not like God's thoughts. Our ways are not like his ways, and, and we cannot judge him and hold him accountable for everything we don't understand. There's a lot we don't understand, but he is still God. How great thou art. I want to share with you some things today, and we may not finish today. If we don't, we'll probably continue on with this passage next Sunday but there's some things that God says about himself that just makes him great. One, he is a creating God. In verse 1, but now says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob. 
The Lord your Creator, Bereshibara Elohim Hashamaim Vav HaEretz, is the first verse in the Bible. It says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we usually take a spin off of that, Christians, and boy, I've led the charge on that. And we get in a fight with the evolutionists, and we begin to tell them how wrong they are. They couldn't be more wrong. As a matter of fact, I would even say this, uh, that, that their own ideas will not pass the original tenets of evolution. Uh, things are irreducibly complex. We have now discovered that the microscope has come our way, and we find that if certain microorganisms like a bacterium, if it just had to uh, get its uh, body and then its rotor and then its motor and then its stator and then its flagellum that allows it to move about, if it got it in stages, it would never have made it. It had to have gotten it all at one time. It could not have evolved. That's a basic building block of life, and evolution itself proves itself wrong. But see, there I went. I did just exactly what I said we always do. But we'll not do any more there because I think there's a more important message about the Creator God than that. Bara is the word I read for create. Bara, we get our word barren from it. It means from Nothing. Later, uh, a Latin term would become popular, ex nihilo, out of nothing God created. Now, there is a word for made. God made. He formed man. He got his hands involved. But when he created, he just simply said in the original Hebrew things like light be and light was. Those verses are much shorter in the original language. He just says light be and light is. That's just how he created and he did it out of nothing. He didn't take some of this and some of that and, and, and make everything. He can take nothing and do with it whatever he wants to do. He can take disorder. There was chaos and emptiness. Tahu and Bahu are the words there for chaotic and empty. He can take chaos and emptiness and he can organize it. He separated light from darkness. He separated water from land, heaven from earth, day from night, humans from animals, and believe it or not, male from female. He's the God of order. So what's the big deal? I think the big, there's a lot of big deals, but I think the biggest deal is for you and I to remember that God can take our lives when they're full of chaos and full of emptiness and full of darkness and full of hopelessness, and God can do whatever he wants to do. That's the whole message of creation to start with. When people try to take it to science class and, and laugh at it and scorn at it, I, I can just tell you there's a price to be paid for that kind of foolishness because if God had wanted to teach us about DNA, he could have taught us far more than we could have ever comprehended. But what he wanted us to know is that my spirit can move upon that place in our lives 
lives that's dark and, and, and that place that is frightening and that, that marriage that looks like it is just absolutely at the end of its road or, or those relationships. And Christians, we have to remember twice he said in this passage, you are my witnesses. Let me take things in your life that you have already decided. They're hopeless. It's never going to work. He says, let me have my hands upon it, and I can, out of nothing, I can do whatever I choose to do. That's a powerful word. He is a creator God. I, I, I think sometimes we get to the place that we just feel like, well, you know, there's just some situations that's just, just never going to work out. I, I think we give up way too easily. And, and, and I think sometimes in our lives, Satan wants us to feel like, boy, you're just a loser. And, and this time you went too far. And, and, and this time it's all over with. It's just, it, 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 there's just nothing left. Your, your life is worthless. Just bring that worthless nothingness to God and surrender it to him and watch what God can do with it. That's the the message of Isaiah 43. He is a creating God. He's a covenant God. He says, for I am the Lord your God. You see the word Lord, and I know if you've been here very much, you understand every letter in it is capitalized. That's not a typo. It means that that word Lord is translating the Hebrew name for God for his cov- by his covenant name, which is what? Yahweh. If a Jewish person were reading this in the original Hebrew, when he or she got to this word, they would say Adonai. They would never say the name Yahweh. It was only spoken once a year, and it was spoken by the high priest. It was a very sacred name for God. But what does this name mean for us? I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Well, a covenant is basically an agreement between, and I know this is redundant, between two parties, but it is an agreement, and it is like a legal binding idea. Berit is the word for, in the Hebrew for it. It was a word used for legal binding agreements, diatheke in the New Testament. But for you and I, we need to remember that God's people had an agreement with him. God says, you do this, and I'll do this. I want you to be my people, and I want to be your God. But here is what is required, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. And I'll give you ten commandments, and this will help guide you in my expectations. And, and, and they never, ever were able to keep them. As a matter of fact, they added to them, and, and they dissected them until we had 613 of them by the time Jesus Christ came. But we could never, ever keep the law. We were just not able to do it. His people could not do it. We are not able to do it. So what happened is this. God being God and a covenant God, he would see to it that the covenant worked. And the only way for him to do that is the price that had to be paid for us not keeping our end was death. 
So he came here, lived among us, died on the cross, kept the covenant for us, satisfied his own anger against our sin so we could have a relationship with him. That's what happens when you enter into a covenant with God. And if we can say no to that, then we are fools because he has come and he satisfied his own wrath. And 1 John 2, 2, it says that, that he became the propitiation, big long word. But the word basically means he became a sacrifice to satisfy his wrath, his own wrath, against our sin. So we could have a relationship with him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We can frame it a lot of ways. Sometimes we like to say, well, you know, we... We really tried, but there was a lot we couldn't do. We couldn't do anything. We don't need to ever act like that we just almost made it. And God came in in the fourth quarter and hit some three-pointers and got us through. I can tell you, friend, we were lost on our way to hell. Now, you imagine that for a moment. For all the people in our world right now, and boy, that number is growing by the day. Former Christians and church attendees now have bought into a new style of thinking that, well, somehow or another, one day everybody will be together with God in heaven. Really? You think people for whom God came here and died paid the price for them to satisfy his anger against their sin and they still shake their fist in his face. You think God's just going to do a, ah, well, y'all, come on. (laughs) No. No. It's a precious thing to have a relationship with a covenant God. Number three, he is a sovereign God. I'll give you a second to get over the fact that didn't start with C. Deep breath. Good. He is a sovereign God. Verse 13, even from eternity, I am he. Before there ever was this little continuum we call time that started with the beginning and one day will end. He said, no, no, no. Even from eternity, he didn't say, I was he. Because he's timeless. He said, even from eternity, I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand and I act and who can reverse it. Man, a lot of times with the sovereignty part, we get into all kinds of stuff about Calvinism and things like that and, and, and different ideas, and we talk about how awesome God is compared to other gods. I think, again, this morning, there is a deeper meaning for us as we begin celebrating this season of our Savior coming and living and dying among us. And that is a fact that He chose us before the foundation 
of the world. So if you're wondering if you really are a born-again Christian, if your salvation will last, it will because you were chosen in eternity. It will last throughout eternity because He is a sovereign God. And when He saves us, there is nobody that can unsave us. Matter of fact, he tried to simplify it. We complicated it. He says you must be born again. So to be unborn again would be like most of all of you that are sitting here this morning. I said most. I think all of you sitting here this morning, you've been born at least one time. I'm just taking a wild guess here, but I, I, I think you have. You couldn't be unborn. Try to unborn yourself right now. There's just no way you can go back and do that. That's a done deal. And you didn't help. Really. I can tell you, you didn't help with a bit of that. It was something that was done. And when I was born again, I can't go back and be unborn again. Certainly, I don't want to be. But I am so glad that it is not up to me that my salvation endures throughout all eternity because God is a sovereign God. He chose me. He chose to save me, not just before I was born, but before there was even a world or a universe that that. that that we live in. He chose me then. He still chooses me this very day. My salvation is secure. That's an awesome truth. That's an awesome truth of the one question that I guess I've grown more weary of in all these years than any other is, is Pastor, do you think we can lose our salvation? That tells me that you don't understand salvation at all. It's a, you, you, it, I don't need to, I, I used to try to tell people, oh, now sometimes you might not feel safe, but you still are safe. And all. I, I tried to deal with the symptoms. Really, it's a foundational issue. Do you understand how you got saved to start with? It's only by His grace. It's only by Him. He did it all. So there was no part that you did that you can later mess up on. I hadn't even planned on saying that. That just came to me. I think in our thinking, we, if had we written, and I'm glad we didn't, we, we'd have had the story of Noah. We'd have had God driving up a peg in the side of the ark and telling him, you hang on best you can. If you're here when I open the door, good for you. No, it says that Noah and his family entered into the ark and God shut them in. God says, no, I'll let you do all the work, but I'll shut the door. I'll determine who's in and who's not. And I'll also determine who stays in who's safe, and who dies. That's not in your hands, Noah. You've been obedient. Now I'm God. It's time for a God move. And God does it. Man, I love what Paul tells us in Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I like, I don't want to, those verses are entailed, but 
the two things that we dread most is at the first of the list. He says, neither death nor life. Those are the two things that we worry about the most. And a lot of people worry more about life than they do death. Suicide is it's incredible right now. It, it, it's, it's off the charts. Among our soldiers in the military, more of them, uh, even during the Iraq war and all of that, more of them died at their own hands. They committed suicide. More of them died that way than died in combat. That's pretty incredible, and people are overdosing, and I know a lot of them didn't intend to. They're being poisoned by fentanyl and all of those kinds of things, but I'm just telling you, life sometimes, boy, it is a frightening thing. And, and sometimes I've, I've, I've tried to understand how can a person get to the point that they take their life. And I believe what happens basically is this. I'm no expert on it, but when you are more afraid of living than you are dying, I think you're at a bad place. More afraid of life. Matter of fact, someone has said that death is jealous of life. Because life gets a lot of shots at us. Death only gets one. Death gets one shot at us and that's it. But life can pummel us day after day, circumstance after circumstance, uh, abuse after abuse, uh, just whatever it might be. So much in life is not so much in life goes unpunished. So much in life is wicked, but yet accepted. And, and, and sometimes when we get to looking at all of that, we forget the bigger picture that if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior and have trusted in Him, we will spend eternity with God. But on this side, it can get really confusing. And if we're not careful, death and life, they're tough. They're tough. But I can tell you it will not separate us from his love. I don't understand how God could love us like he does. But he does. He is a sovereign God. And he has given us that gift of righteousness that we did not deserve and we belong to him. I'm going to do one more. He's a creating God, a covenant God, a sovereign God. He is a redeeming God. Verse 1, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, and you are mine. All that's tied together because that's what redemption is. I think redemption is one of those words that, boy, we throw around a lot, but if you ask people what does it mean, we, we get the stutters, as Christian. Well, it's, that's how we are saved. It's part of our salvation or whatever. You haven't really told me too much about it. What is redemption? It's such an awesome blessing. I think we ought to understand a little bit about what really does it mean to be redeemed. He says, well, I have called you by name, and you are mine. To redeem someone in the Old Testament, and we have an example called the Goel, G-O-E-L. A Goel was a kinsman redeemer. 
And it would be somebody to whom you are kin and your family, it may be rather distant, but let's say your family fell on hard times, you had to sell all your land. This happened often in the Jewish community. In the Old Testament, you had to sell everything you had. You didn't own anything. Your creditors were coming and taking everything away from you. What would happen is if a goel came along, he or she would assume, and back then it was a he, but he would assume responsibility for all your debts. And he would meet with your debtors. And he would keep him from taking your land and taking your house and whatever other money you owed or whatever other kind of trouble you were in. He would say, this person is now mine. I am responsible for him. And if you got any problems whatsoever, you come and see me. That's how a kinsman redeemer would save someone from destitution. We have a perfect example of it, and you know where I'm going. One of my favorite books in all of Scripture is the book of Ruth because it is like a diamond and a pig's ear. The pig is a book of judges because men did that which was right in their own eyes. That stinks like a pig. We have it today. We live in a moral sty of squalor. Because people do that which is right in their own eyes. Whatever God says is one thing, but the way I see it, uh uh-huh. Read the book of Judges. It'll tell you what kind of chaos can ensue from those sort of ideas. Right in the middle of that, though, we find a diamond in the old sow's ear, and that's the story of Ruth. I know you know it, but you can't stop me. A man named Elimelech, interesting, ironic. El is God, Melech is king, and E is mine. My God is king. Well, until we ran out of food. And he packed up his family and left Bethlehem, the place God had put him. By the way, Bethlehem is house of, anybody remember? Man, y'all are so good. Why am I here? Maybe you've asked that. Beit Lachim is the word for house of bread. So you leave the house of bread and you go to, of all places, Moab. Man, that is like leaving Rutherfordton and going to San Francisco. I mean, I, I know. It, a comparison fails me. It's worse than that. But they went to Moab. That was a place God told his people to never go. But Elimelech using his own common sense and short-sighted thinking, said, if I don't go, my sons Malon and Kilion are going to die and my wife Naomi are going to die. So they left. This is all in the book of Ruth. They left and they go to Moab. And when they get to Moab, of course, you know the story. Malon and Kilion, they marry. Malon marries Ruth. Kilion marries Orpah. Well, Malon, Kilion die. Limelech dies. It's left these three women to themselves. Ruth and Orpah come to Ruth, uh, I mean, Ruth and Orpah come to Naomi and say, you're going back to your homeland, we understand. You've heard that there's bread to eat there. We want to go with you. She told him, says, there's no need to go with me. Look, I've done been through enough embarrassment, and the way this thing usually works is I'll have more sons than you'll have to marry them. And, 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 but I'm too old. I'm too old. Even if I had a child a day, he'd be too young 
uh, for him to ever become one of your husbands. There's just no way. And of course, long story short, Ruth did go on home back to Bethlehem with Naomi. And of course, Orpah stayed in Moab and started a television show. She actually was named after Orpah. Oprah said her mother couldn't pronounce the name correctly, but that is who she was named after. I, that's worth coming for, was it not? <laughs> Naomi and Ruth return home. They're destitute. Elimelech owns some land somewhere, but it's going to have to be sold. There's nobody to look after it. There's nobody to take responsibility for it. Well, Ruth goes out, and she's gleaning in the field, and she must have been quite a looker, and Boaz sees her, and he decides he likes her, but he already knows that I don't have first dibs on her because of this thing called a kinsman redeemer. Whoever is next of kin, cousin, third cousin, uncle, whoever it might be, will get to have Elimelech's land and have authority over it and be able to redeem it if he wants to. But because this woman named Ruth, who is a Moabitess, because she was married to Elimelech's child, I mean to uh, Malon, to uh, Elimelech's son Malon, then you're going to have to marry Ruth. Now he wants to marry her. So he meets with the guy, and there's ten elders, and they meet there at the gate of the city. That's where you paid your traffic tickets in that day. They had court at the gate of the city. He meets them at the gate of the city. He tells the next of kin after he finds out who he is, he says, Look, Elimelech has a slan. Uh, it belongs to him, but it's going to be sold. They are destitute. Naomi has nothing. You can redeem it. But if you do, if you take responsibility for the land, you're going to have to marry Elimelech's daughter-in-law, Ruth. And the guy says, I can't do it. And Boaz says, yes. And he marries her. Well, how awesome is that? Problem is, we got a Moabite woman, not Israelite. She's married to Boaz. I know some of you know this, but who was Boaz's mother? Rahab the harlot. She'd been a harlot so long it had become part of who she was. They just called her Rahab the harlot. We're still doing it today. Rahab the harlot was Boaz's mother. Ruth is a Moabite. I always love this part. What good could come from that? Well, they have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. David has a son named Solomon. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam has a son named Abijah. And if you keep on going, in that same bloodline one day, a man named Joseph with a virgin named Mary has a son named Jesus. Whoa. The only word I can think of, Hallie. Whoa, dude. That's what God can do. That's why we sing, How Great Thou Art.
He's been taking people like us a long time, friend. People that do good some days and not so hot the others. People who feel like their life is a waste of time. Their good for God is gone. He takes those kind of people in situations all the time. He can take nothing. And he can create everything. You just got to be willing to surrender the nothing. Say, God, here it is. I'm ashamed of it, God. But here it is. You got to be like the guy that Jesus healed that had the withered hand. I think a lot about him nowadays. When Jesus healed him, he said, stretch out your hand. He didn't say which one. A lot of times we kind of like to do this. Well, there's my hand, God. It's got a few blemishes now. God says, now I want this one. I mean, the man knew, of course. But sometimes we like to show God our best hand. We like to talk to him about areas of our life that we feel good about. No, he says, I want to see the withered hand. Because I'm not here to be impressed. I'm here to heal. Show him your hand today. Be honest with him. Say, God, I'm a mess. Be willing to tell him it's not anybody else's fault. It's mine. Help me, God. Let's pray. How great you are. And we praise your name, God. And Lord, I know that we're about to have some announcements and closing things and talk about some business a little bit. But Lord, I pray right now that you would work a miracle and that if you are speaking to someone's heart, that it would not get lost. It would not get lost in the closing of this service that that it wouldn't grow far from their minds and hearts, Lord. They've been this close too many times and walked away. I pray, God, that you'll just touch every heart here today. And right now as we pray, I pray, Lord, that someone here, someone here, God, and I'm sure there's more than one, but I pray, Father, that whoever's here today that needs to say, God, here is my big wad of nothing. I want you to take it, Lord, and create something out of it. Redeem me, God. It's the only hope I've got. Lord, I don't, I'm not worthy of it, but you've got to take responsibility, Lord, for my sinfulness. And you've got to pay the price, Lord. And you've got to satisfy my debts, God. I can't do it. I can't do it. Redeem me, God. I pray you'd help us today, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. 
Please join us again next week.